Just testing. Yeah, is this, is this comfortable as well in the back? You can hear us? Is it too loud? No, sorry. A bit too loud? Okay, then we go a little bit lower with the mic. We just have to see when we get closer. Good evening. Welcome to Wolfie's Talks and today a very special edition. Uh, very exciting to have a real legend of the sport of triathlon with us. We go back about 17, 18 years uh, when you came the first time. Uh, no, not the first time. You came the first time to the shop, and the shop was much closer. We talked today, and I think uh, the airline lost your lost your luggage, and you needed to buy some shoes. And obviously, you were uh, I don't want to say an unknown triathlete, but for me, an unknown triathlete, I was not aware about the sport as much. Uh, and then, obviously, 2005, um, yeah, big victory in, in Hawaii. So, uh, really, really a big welcome to Farsad Sultan, world champion and European champion. Please have a seat. Um, we will have a lot of time to, to ask questions later, so we have the whole evening um, and Faris will tell us about his story. I, I wrote down a few questions, but I think the story is amazing. I think he has a lot of things to tell us, uh, but if you have anything, feel free to ask later. Um, so Faris, welcome again to Dubai. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. I feel, I feel honored. Yes. Um, just want to go back to the beginning. Where did it all start for you and why, why the sport of triathlon? Well, now, first of all, uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, and uh, I go right into the question: How did it all start? It all started more or less when I was 14 years old, and uh, I was a bit chubby, a little bit overweight, and uh, decided I have to lose weight. Um, I hardly ate for about six weeks, and uh, lost about 15 kilograms. And uh, the fat was gone. Unfortunately, the, mus the muscle as well. And I decided uh, I have to do something uh, in order to eat normal again and uh, gain back some of the muscle. And 
Um, so the swimming club was looking for a new talent. Um, I was a bit old for that, but uh, I decided to give it a shot and uh, wanted to swim three times a week. But uh, I ended up uh, swimming seven times a week after about six months and doing uh, two sessions per week in the gym and two sessions uh, dry land exercises. So it was in full swing, competitive sports. Um, it was obvious that I won't become a great swimmer because I was a bit too late. Um, and then I looked for the new challenge. Uh, I decided I want to run a mar marathon. <clears throat> With uh, 16, I ran my first marathon. And then I saw pictures of Ironman Hawaii and Thomas Hellerigl, the first German uh, winner of Ironman Hawaii. And uh, that was it. I said, this is it. This is what I want to do. And uh, I can't swim, I can't run, and uh, now I buy a bike and figure out how to ride, and then I'm in. And that's how it started. Um, for those who are not aware, you, you've come to the UE since many, many years, so what's the connection with UE and where's Paris Al Sultan, the name? How, how does this come along? <laughs> yeah, the Arabic name comes from my dad. My dad um, is from Iraq and left Iraq in 1958. He was one of the 20 best students um, and got a scholarship and decided to go to Germany and uh, study chemistry. Uh, and he met my mom and stayed there. And um, so, but he has some local friends and uh, he was um, helping them when the first UAE locals came to Munich uh, for medical treatment and uh, so he was translating for them, going to the doctors and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so he visited the UAE regularly. And when I was 14, uh, I was uh, in the UAE for the first time on holiday. And when I decided to um, be you know, more, a little bit more ambitious, um, I, in 1999, I decided to go here and uh, exploit the good conditions, nice roads, perfect weather, and decided to train here. Then in 2002, I think, was the first time we opened the shop here. And then it was 2002 and 2003, maybe in the winter period, must be the first time when we met, um, when the shoes were from missing in Alitalia. And the shop was much smaller. <laughs> I was only myself and my wife and, and one mechanic, and then uh, we have two tribes came in and said, oh, I have no shoes, and so this is how the whole story started. But um, why a lane, and what do, you, what do you like about the lane? Well, Alain didn't have so much crazy traffic, a lot of roads, and obviously the Jebel. Um, that was the time before you had Jebel J's for cycling, so uh, it was only Jebel Hafi. And uh, today, um, more or less by chance, we saw the guys from the UE tour riding up there. And uh, I have a lot of memories <laughs> going up that, that little mountain. Um, uh, I think I rode up several hundred times. Uh, in my career, and um, yeah, that was another decided major factor why I choose uh, to go there. There's some some uh, stories that you wrote from Elaine uh, to Dubai, did a triathlon, rode back. So this is this is a normal training for you in, in, in your good days. <laughs> Before I retired and when I was still in shape, uh, we did uh, some crazy mileage. Yeah. And uh, I rode to Dubai the day before, uh, did a little triathlon race the next day in the morning, and then 
after the triathlon race wrote back uh, to Adrian. Yeah, that, that, that's true. That, that was happening. Okay. Um, Ironman takes a lot of training and preparation. How did you find your training in UE when you were preparing for the races? So you came sometimes for the Friday morning ride. You were here with Patrick Lange. You were here with Pete Jacobs. You had the Abu Dhabi team. What was this all about? Well, basically, I thought that this is uh, cyclist paradise uh, in the name, and you had those long roads where you could ride on the shoulder, great pavement, and you could uh, do the miles pretty easy, you know. The, the weather was a certainty, you had never had to worry about that. Um, and, uh, and endless roads where you could ride, and not much traffic back in the day. Um, and uh, I had access uh, to an apartment, um, which I could use, and so everything was there that I needed, and uh, so you know the connection was built, and um, I, I still to this day I I'm very thankful to the UAE because it formed it shaped me as an athlete, and later um, me and some of my friends we wanted to found a triathlon team. And uh, we approached the Abu Dhabi Tourism Authority for sponsorship, and they agreed. And uh, that's why for four years we had that triathlon team up and running, and I think it was a quite successful one. Um, if I consider the, the, the financial effort and uh, the outcome. So, uh, yeah, there was another great episode of, uh, of the triathlon story. Um, and then, obviously, the big, the big win in 2005 your greatest result of your career winning Ironman Hawaii. So how many times you started before before you then won in Hawaii? Uh, let's see, I was uh, 56, 27, 7th, 3rd, and then I won, so it was my fifth my fifth race in Kona. And then you had 10 years, I think you were top 10? Uh, in total, I had 9 or 10, uh, I think 9 um, top 10. Uh, results in Kona, uh, but f four times it was the tenth place, <laughs> so I barely made it. <laughs> what are the, the memories of 2005? What, what can you tell us about the event and winning? Well, obviously, it was a, it was the greatest race uh, of my career. I mean, I had other races where I probably that felt on a personal level more satisfying, um, and, uh, and were probably sometimes harder to do to achieve. But of course, I mean. It's the race of the races, and what can you, what else can you do? I mean, so uh, this was the race, and um, my my memories from the race are still still um, what's what's still quite uh, quite limited in my in my memory is the swim. We were three guys: Simon Lessing, very famous short course athlete from South Africa, um, and uh, Japanese uh, short course athlete. And uh, I remember when we went around the turn boat, um, the Japanese guy was leading up to there all the time, and I wanted uh, to go up front to support him. You know, uh, I mean, the poor guy was working for about two kilometers, uh, so I, I slipped out of the draft and wanted to go in front, and I was like, "Oh, can't do that!" So immediately went back to the feet. Good guy, you're by yourself. I can't help you. And uh, so he was leading the whole way, and then, but you know, he wasn't up for the challenge yet, and uh, wasn't ready. So I dropped him pretty soon, and uh, left the race for a while. Then uh, Danish triathlete Torben Zimpali 
past me. And um, it was a hot day. And Torbjörn, being a rather heavy Danish guy, had uh, issues with the heat. Already that, at that time, he was experimenting with uh, the, the thermometer capsules that you could swallow. And, uh, and he had a, a plastic glove where he put in ice cubes to cool himself, which I didn't know. Uh, and I, I, I hadn't realized that he was wearing that. So, um, and it was a very hot day. So about seven kilometers into the run, I passed him and I said, pretty hot day today, isn't it? And he must have thought, you idiot. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't mean to, to torture him, but uh, he must have felt it that way. And uh, yeah, so I passed him, I was in the lead, and uh, once I reached the first turning point of the run, uh, I had about three minutes, and uh, I thought that that won't be enough, um, because I mean, Peter Reed was chasing me, and Ken Brown, and, um, but my idea was, okay, I make it as hard as I possibly can for those guys, and that's what I did, and uh, they never caught me. So, yeah, pretty happy. And, <laughs> and on the last final kilometers, I had about a five minute lead, but uh, I was full of paranoia because Thomas Hellregel, the first German winner, was twice overtaken at kilometer 39. Um, so I, I turned around about every 50 meters just to check if somebody's coming, and uh, I, I was never was sure that I actually make it uh, until you know I saw the the, the finish uh, the finish line too, and um, and once I finally crossed it, of course I was very happy and relieved, but I have no remembrance whatsoever of my actual crossing the line at maybe the first you know, one to two hours after crossing the finish line. <laughs> I think a very important question obviously is where is the Ironman to do on your body? Is there any where obviously you need an Ironman to do when you win the Ironman? What what, what a story about the Ironman to do? I have no tattoos nowhere and uh, no it's um, probably I'm not a big big fan enough <laughs> to put the tattoo on me. Okay, what, what do you think about the changes in the sport now that nobody races in Speedos anymore? They wear proper clothing, uh, cover their body. Is this something you, you feel is, is not well, the right way in triathlon? Mm, unfortunately, it's necessary. Okay. Um, I mean, many people are curious why the, the times become so much faster in the last couple of years, and the answer is the clothing. Um, we had fairly good bikes back in the day. I don't think that there was so much development on the wheels, for example, um, but the clothing is something that has really changed the game. And uh, if you look at the wattage that the best athletes um, put out nowadays, it's not much different, and probably even less than what Norman Stadler um, was pushing. But uh, the clothing is a huge factor. And uh, late in my career, um, I tested on the track my usual attire of speedo and the, the very short top um, and against just a Castelli 
sleeved uh, top and it had a difference of about 12 watt. So you can imagine wearing a full body suit that is really that's flawless. You know, it's just so huge that we don't have any chance anymore. So that's my next question. What advice would you give young Faris? What advice would you give to young Faris? Um, and, and now looking back at your career, what, what would you have done different? Is there anything you would have said you should have changed to be more successful? Or any, any tips you would give your young self? Oh, well, of course. I mean, <coughs> the, the sport has changed so much. And although many things, what we can scientifically explain today, um, we did instinctively or by chance, we did right. Um, but of course, there are some things that I've done wrong. And uh, one thing, for example, in the gym, I hardly trained legs, mainly upper body. I, I wish I would have done more squatting instead of bench press. Uh, that would have helped. <laughs> and, um, and also, you know, you have to, if you want to perform, want to perform on the highest level, you have to uh, nurture your speed qualities. And uh, I was very endurance and, and endurance driven and uh, sometimes neglected uh, the importance of the quality that you have to put in, not so much because of the, the physiology behind it, but because of um, all the, the, the being able to move fast from uh, uh, motorical, with your, with your motorical, with your speed skills um, that, uh, that I would have done differently for sure. Okay, you trained obviously top athletes like Patrick Lange for two years and now you're the coach of the German national team ITU and you, you're here with your team uh, next week in Abu Dhabi, so maybe an interesting event for you to, to join as well to see uh, because there's some really top athletes there. So what, what did you learn from, from going from long distance to short distance? What advice can you give uh, to athletes? Well, of course, it's some of the things are basically the same because it's um, whether you do a one-hour race, a two-hour race, a even a 20-minute race, or an eight-hour race, it's still an endurance race. So all your aerobic capacity has to be trained well. And if you look at the top short course athletes, the top short course athletes are good at short distance, at sprint distance, and at the, at the, the relay distance. So they're simply good athletes. Um, and if you look at the, the mileage, the volume that some of the Norwegians put out, I mean, this is just crazy, and they are not so. They, they, they just have to shift a little bit, and then they would be long course athletes. So the main focus is still on the endurance because it's an endurance sport. But that said, um, obviously, even in short course, it's even more important to stress all that uh, speed skills that you have, and there, obviously. Um, it also comes down to the, to to a, a physiological component that has to be there. You have to be able to use that uh, yeah, physiological glycolytic engine uh, to go hard to survive attacks and all that. So uh, to to train a well class short course athlete is more difficult than a long course athlete because with a long course athlete it's rather simple. You know, you, you know exactly what you have to do. Very good. Um, 
now you're standing on the sideline and uh, supposed to be on the racing itself. How is it when you when you come to an event and you you stand now as a coach on the side of your athletes? You, you feel tempted again to start, or you you're happy that you don't have to go through the training again? You're now father of two, so how has life changed after being an, a top athlete and now being the, the coach for the national team? Well, of course, it ha life has changed, and of course, I still love to work out and, and do stuff. Uh, uh, I, I think I hardly love anything more than that, um, but um, I I know that I wouldn't be able to perform anywhere close to what I was able to, and it would no longer be satisfying. So uh, I'm totally happy with standing on the side and watching the guys and trying to get them to do the best of what they can. Um, and instead of doing it myself. I still enjoy, of course, cycling, swimming, and running, and going to the gym, being active, but now it's more or less for fun, and I do the occasional race, but not a triathlon race. I mean, I'm, I'm totally retired from that. Um, which, with your racing and coaching experience, what do you believe is the biggest uh, things you would give as a tip, and what are the biggest mistakes athletes are doing uh, during racing and training? Oh, well, First of all, for an age group athlete, the best advice that I would give is enjoy the shit. You know, you're not getting paid for it, so it's sometimes, you know, you feel like they, there's so much stress. I mean, the sport is supposed to make your life better and not more miserable. And uh, if you stress yourself all the time, then uh, better you get paid for it because it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and be relaxed, have fun, enjoy it, you know. Um, and uh, as I said, it is supposed to make your life better, not worse. For um, the biggest mistakes, usually um, it's often the, the pace is too high in training or the pace is too low, that's also happening. Usually men tend to have the pace is too high, women it's more like the pace is too low. Um, with the age group uh, athletes, not of course, that, uh, it's not true for everyone, but so general direction goes into that way. Um, and uh, very, you know, uh, monotonous training, you know, no varieties in training. And um, the, the specialty is the cycling for the age group guys, you know, they go with. 32.8 kilometers on average during a training ride, and uh, at racing they have 33.2. So yeah, that that, that, that's, that simply is not good. If you look at a cyclist, pro tour cyclist, he'll, he'll go with 30 kilometers an hour in training and 50 kilometers in racing. So there uh, must be a, a, uh, a bigger gap between training pace and racing pace. So you really feel you put the, the sides where you go a bit slower? and then you push yourself harder. I think most of us enjoy maybe riding in a, somewhere in the middle because that's kind of the comfort zone. Um, but if you really want to get better, you train with the swimmers, would you recommend this thing that you say go swimming with the swimmers, go cycling with the cyclists, go running with the runners or? or? I, I would always recommend to look at what the specialists do. Do not train with them all the time because they have to do something, something different. Otherwise they will all be triathletes. Um, but it makes sense, of course, to, to look into what the specialists are doing and to, to consider what's useful for you out of their training.
Any other uh, favorite races you had, destinations you've been, where you can say, listen, if you plan for an event, you've been in Lanzarote, you've been all around the world doing triathlons, is there any place and any memory which was really fond? Well, I liked the, the race in Sincroix a lot. Um, it used to be kind of the season opening for the, for the uh, Northern American, uh, American athletes. Um, it was like little Hawaii, uh, I enjoyed that. But you know, there were so many, and especially we're blessed back home in Germany because there are so many well conducted and uh, good organized races. So, uh, yeah, can't complain about that. I had fun at experimental races like uh, uh, Sri Lanka as well. Uh, it was a little crazy, but uh, was fun as well. So, uh, I think. Generally, most triathlon races are held at exciting destinations, and uh, so whenever you have the chance to go somewhere, uh, that's beautiful, and then you race, and maybe you can combine with the holiday. So, um, as I said, back home, yeah, a few nice races, but I hardly know many bad places, or bad races that I've done. Have you followed uh, 2019, the Ironman, and the last years in Hawaii? Is this something you have, you have seen? Do you think the future, any athletes you see coming up, which we haven't maybe seen yet, and you see some talent coming that way, or who do you expect to be dominant in the next years? Well, I think that uh, Brayden Curry and uh, Patrick Nielsen are very interesting athletes with a lot of talent. Um, I don't know how they develop, and you know we have so many good triathletes on short course and you know all around at the scene so that with them it's simply whether they are able to put the time in to, uh, to develop into those great athletes that, and, and, that have those great performances that we'd like to see um, but at the moment these two are probably the ones that uh, you know would be my favorites for the future um, we want to open maybe the, the floor as well for some for some questions. So we want to give enough time that you can ask first all the questions. That we ask any questions we shouldn't ask, is no, and nothing is off topic. So you can uh, just just we have a microphone. Um, we upgrade our system, so we have now. Uh, thank you for sharing with us all this uh, very nice information, especially that we have to enjoy. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I tell my children. <laughs> Uh, one question, is there any Ironman that you would have liked to do and you couldn't do or you didn't have the opportunity? Japan. Um, I tried to get in contact back in the day with the organizer, but it uh, didn't work out for some reason I cannot explain, but that just didn't happen. And of course there are plenty of races that I would like to win, and I couldn't win, but that's my legs. <laughs> Nothing else is fault. Hi, Fari Sarah, good to see you again. Uh, I have uh, bumped into you in many races, Austria, South Africa. Um, they have uh, rock marathon here, uh, sorry, the half marathon, the one hundred marathon long ago. So anyways, just a question. Um, Chris McCormack uh, mentioned in his book, uh, Here to Win, that there was some sort of friction between the two of you. Did you guys ever overcame this um, rivalry or friction and you became friends or, or did you never care? <laughs> no. Sorry. No. And I don't want to go 
any further into detail, but no. You mentioned before that you're going to Tokyo with the national team, so Olympic Games. I think that's that must be an unbelievable uh, yeah, place to go when, when you have your athletes ready. And, and, and any exciting things you you're looking forward to Tokyo? Well, of course. I mean, it's the Olympic Games, so uh, I'm 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 excited just to think about it. And uh, I was there last year for the for the test event, and um, that was already pretty cool. And yeah, I think the. The German Federation was pretty down in 2016. A lot of issues with qualification and so on. So uh, it almost seems like it, like it's no longer the federation that brought out Jan Frodeno and uh, those Daniel Uma and all those good guys. Um, and uh, we're slowly trying to turn it around. And uh, thank God now we're quali we're qualified the, the relay and two of our athletes are already qualified. And, and we are going to qualify to more, so so that is good. So the development is good. And I mean, last year <coughs> the the team was uh, uh, second at the European Championships, second at the World Championships. So you know, it's it's coming along, and uh, I'm looking forward to see them race uh, next week uh, when the the very best of the best will race. The field is more stacked than it will be in Tokyo. In Abu Dhabi, and uh, I I can't wait to see uh, our relay perform that. So I, I met your son today, and um, he's still small. But if he comes one day and said, "Daddy, I want to be a pro triathlete," you would say, "Go for it." Oh well, of course. I mean, I would support him, but uh, um, I often have these issues as well that uh, you can't do triathlon for daddy. This is. This is not happening. If, if you ever try that, and, and I mean, I've seen that along during my career where the parents want the children so badly uh, to, to become professional athletes, whether it was in swimming or in triathlon, and that most often doesn't work out. And uh, uh, I'd rather see my son doing no sports at all and being happy than uh, me forcing him uh, to become something that he doesn't like to be. Hi, Chris. Um, I have two questions. First one, how did you see triathlon as a triathlete? And how did you see it as a coach? What's the difference? Um, the second question, how did it feel coaching the world champion? Okay, I, I, I answer the second question first. Um, I have to clarify that um, I didn't start my coaching experience because I thought that uh, this is something I'm obliged to do, and uh, and I simply needed an excuse for being still in the scene, and you know could possibly fly somewhere and send that to my wife. <laughs> because if you if you go there with, with no reason, then it's pretty hard. So the whole the whole coaching story came along as uh, yeah, I'll, it's kind of kind of a hobby. And, uh, and then Patrick all of a sudden developed so well, so that was kind of a, 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 a positive accident, you could call it. And obviously I was very happy with it, and, um, and I mentioned it today already uh, in a conversation um, that after I retired, I thought, okay, this is it, I've had a great career, and now you know, I'm retired, and you know, I start feeding the dogs or do whatever. And, um, and then uh, I was on a German TV show, then 
I, I got a, a sponsorship contract when I was retired, which I thought pretty cool. Uh, and then Patrick came along, and all of a sudden, you know, I was the coach of a two-time world champion. Uh, and now I'm the head coach of the German Federation, so, you know, they're like, okay, I'll take that, you know? Um, and looking at triathlon as a triathlon or as a coach, I think as a coach, you're a bit more relaxed, or at least I am more relaxed. Um, many things that I see now, like, um, for example, there's always that discussion, okay, you now we have the 140th, 70.3 race in the world, and there's no real competition, and the winner is not a real pro, and whatever. And uh, uh, I also had that today, but also a couple of weeks ago when I met uh, with Niels Fromhold and, uh, and his coach. And I was like, dude, I don't care if the winner at 70.3 Mongolia needs five hours to win that thing. I don't care if that his athletic performance isn't so good. Because the only thing I care about is there are 2,000 Mongolians now that do triathlon and they enjoy it. So that's good for me because I'm living in the triathlon world. And I'd rather see another 500 70.3s all over the world in every village uh, and have people enjoy triathlon and do it than you know, keeping it small and have all those great athletes at one or two races, uh, which is great to watch then but uh, we haven't grown the sport. And uh, so, you know, this is what I understand much better now standing on the outside than I was on, when I was on the inside. And also, you know, the discussions about uh, um, WTC, you know, greedy and don't pay their pros and whatever. Well, if, if they provide the stage, yeah, they can keep the appearance fee. I need the stage. And if the stage is perfect, then it's good enough, then I bring the sponsors in, you know, then I have something to sell. And all those things you understand much better when you're on the sideline than when you're in it. Because when you're in it, okay, you want to raise for money and it's, all, it's a very self-centered sport. Um, so these are things that you might understand much better when you're on the outside. Thank you very much for coming today. I'm personally like super excited to be here and s s finally have the opportunity to meet you in person. Um, I brought a little goodie as well that I would like to see um, after the meeting. <laughs> um, actually, um, the, my question that I have um, is partially already answered, like how you made that split, that transition from becoming a successful athlete to also be a successful coach, which doesn't actually happen. Like, um, you can be a super successful athlete and you can just totally be a zero as a coach and just totally fail. And do you think that you have personally like developed your knowledge about triathlon, about how things are being done, at like uh, like developing that sport further into like state of art? Um, And um, do you see yourself coaching super, uh, like future world champions? Oh, no. Like, single, a, like as, as, a, as a coach of single athletes? Well, that's a, that's a pretty hard question, the last one, because 
I'm, I'm coaching two athletes at the moment, and uh, I don't know how one of them probably won't be a world champion. I don't know how the other one will develop. But that was never my my intention. So the intention was always to try to improve them. And I personally think the best coach is not the one that uh, has uh, one world champion and all his other athletes failed, but the one that, you know, squeezes out the very best performance out of each and every one of his athletes. His athletes. And that might be with one athlete that that athlete is able to run 10 kilometers at any pace. And with the other guy, it might be the club championship. And with the next one, you need to be whatever, world champion. And another one so has this and that goal. So, but I think that a coach's uh, goal must be to, to get the most out of each and every athlete. Um, and then, of course, personally, I have developed, especially in the last two, one and a half years with the Federation, uh, I learned a lot, not only about the sport itself, but also how sport in Germany, the, the whole government-funded sport works. Um, and uh, yeah, so I have developed myself as well. And most of the coaching advice that I give, obviously, is based on what I've what I've experienced myself. Um, and the hardest part for me, but what I, what I already realized when I was still an athlete, first I thought that every triathlete thinks the same way that I do, because simply we do the same sport, which is not the case. And uh, that was an interesting for me to understand in the beginning, um, because to me, okay, we're all professional triathletes, so we all think the same, but no, we don't. And not everybody works the same way, others, um, develops well under the same training program and, and all that. And uh, yeah, as I said, I learned a lot in the last uh, one and a half years and, uh, and developed in, a, in every aspect. Do you think um, now being a successful coach and having driven to um, um, Patrick Lana to two times world champion, do you think you can, you can with your, with that knowledge that you have, that you have reached now, and like your personal development, that you can lead and guide like potential candidates to to that step, like to make them become a lot, like you say, get the best out of them. But do you think you can take a little bit more? Well, one thing is for sure: no coach in the world you can turn a donkey into a racehorse. That's not that's not happening, you know. You can't turn a donkey into a fast donkey, but this is this is where it ends. And if you have a guy like Patrick, he simply is very very gifted, obviously with his very efficient run style and then with his very very good aerodynamics on the bike. So this is something that you do not coach. This is something that is given. And of course, efficiency on the run is to some degree coachable, but only to some degree. And uh, you know, it's like talent is is a very difficult uh, term because uh, you can basically work on everything, but you cannot work on everything at the same time. You know, so th the less you have to work on, the more talented you more or less are. And uh, and some people respond very well to training, and others do not. And as I said, there, is, there are barriers that you 
simply cannot, uh, you know, uh, cannot overcome. And um, I, I'm definitely not the right coach for everyone, that's for sure. Uh, I don't think anyone is. And uh, a lot is happening in the brain. And, uh, and with some people quick and it works, and with some people it doesn't. And it's the same training program. So, yeah. It's uh, it's not that easy. I've learned that as well. What is your motivation? So obviously your inspiration to do the sport over so many years at such a high level, and and obviously during every event, at least um, for for most of the people, you come to that point where you say, "Listen, why am I doing this?" So when you're in the run and you're like 30 kilometers into the run, so what did you tell yourself when you were at that dark spot, uh, and you thought, "Okay, Paris, let's go." Uh, what what is it? What goes to your mind, and how do you how do you manage to stay on top of your game for so many years? Well, I obviously I had three very good years, two thousand four, five, and six, and then I, I had a little dip uh, where I did a lot of mistakes, um, especially positioning wise on the bike, and, and simply stuff that small errors that add up, small mistakes that add up. Um, the motivation was always to be as good as I could and uh, to perform as good as I could. And it becomes easier with the years and with the experience that you have. You know, usually at your first Ironman, the Ironman itself is very long and the dark periods get very long and uh, you have a lot of discussions, you know, like what am I doing here with yourself? And the more experience you, you, you have, the shorter usually the whole race gets, and the dark periods get very short. Um, and so you have simply have much more routine. So to me, it was hard to go really, really hard, but not to actually make it. And that is a problem, you know? And uh, it, I didn't have the the golden formula, otherwise I probably would have been more successful. <laughs> what I can tell myself through the races, but um, I simply liked to perform as good as I could, and usually putting on the race number was mostly enough, and I didn't have to tell myself anything very special. Thank you, Faris. I was speaking with a friend a few years ago and we were talking about sleeping and recovery. And he said he heard you speaking and I can't remember the number, but it was an outrageous amount of sleeping. Is that true or, or not true? Well, outrageous. I mean, usually you try to sleep eight to nine hours during the night and then you nap every afternoon. And that, that was what I did. I mean, um, especially when I was here in the UAE, the, the, the life was getting up at 6.30, 7.30 we're on the bike, uh, then you, you ride between three and six hours, uh, depending on the program, then I do a transition run, then lunch, uh, shower, lunch, sleep, uh, have uh, a tea and whatever, muffin, and then you'd go to the gym and do the pool. And, and that was the basic routine, and then uh, you'd leave the, the pool and you go for dinner, shopping, bed, and shopping for groceries, you know, for clothing. <laughs> and that was it. Uh, so you, you would sleep around nine and a half hours a day, uh, at least. Uh, but that's normal, but not like 50. If you, 
one of my friends once slept 14 hours a day. That was when we were training at altitude, and he was overtrained. Massively, I mean, the guy was dead. So, uh, yeah. But then you know something's wrong with you. I remember one episode when you came from Elaine after a training camp, like our seven, eight days, we had like five or six or seven athletes with you, and then we did a Friday morning ride, and then we went for brunch. And we had a, we had a good deal in Portion Arab, so we went to the uh, Al-Maha brunch, and I think the waiters there, they have never seen a group of people eating so much. Yeah. They were like, they were like again and again, and I think one of them had 13 plates of food. <laughs> and it was just like, they came and cleaned the table, and again, new cutlery, new cutlery. <laughs> it looked like you had been for a week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you're young and you train that much, today I, I couldn't eat that much anymore, even if I would train more, but, uh, but of course, you know, uh, we'd have, um, of course, we, we wouldn't eat all that, but two guys, we would cook one kilogram of pasta for lunch, <laughs> and we'd eat probably two-thirds of it, so if you have the, the, the coach team now for the DTU, do you do some mental training, mental coaching with them, or you have a special training for these things? Well, first of all, I'm called the head coach, but I do not coach um, directly. It's more like a management position that I have with the federation. So I do not tell any athlete tomorrow you have to run uh, 10 times 800 meters or whatever, whatsoever. So uh, I'm more... It's like managing, and uh, my main responsibility is the composition of the team, of the relay. Uh, of course, there's other stuff to do, but this is like the main thing. Um, and uh, of course, there is mental coaches that are available. Some athletes use that, uh, many others don't. So that's always a personal decision of the athlete, and the federation can only provide that, but we cannot provide it well, it doesn't make much sense to have like a federation mental coach when the athletes are distributed all over and they cannot see that person and not try, cannot build up uh, a trust relationship to that very person. Then it doesn't make any sense. And who do you think for yourself is the inspiration? Who is the biggest pride lead you feel? Is there, is there one person in particular that sticks out where you say, okay, that was my inspiration as young, a young athlete or somebody you really say, okay, if I'm thinking triathlon, that's the person? Well, my inspiration was Thomas Henry. That was kind of the guy, and uh, I liked his style of racing. Um, I liked the no-nonsense approach, tough, and uh, you know he was simply training a lot and training like crazy. And uh, but on the other hand, you know being very grounded and uh, uh, still to this day he's a pretty simple guy and. Uh, and you know, no nonsense. So if we talk about my inspiration, if we talk about the best traffic, I think there's no question about it. I mean, this is Jan Vodino and there's nobody else. You know, uh, that's pretty simple. I mean, nobody has been even close from a success uh, standpoint than he is. So no, that's pretty easy. Yes. Thank you so much for uh, giving us a chance to meet you in person. I'm, I'm pretty also excited to, to meet you here. Um, I have a question for people like, like me, for example. I have a corporate job. Um, I have some time to travel. I have a family. I have kids. What would you advise people like like us, who, who, who love the triathlons, uh, uh, in terms of training, 
what kind of um, things that we should always keep in mind to keep us motivated. In terms of swim, bike, run, if if you would like to miss one of these, what would be the one that you can do? Don't say bike. Don't say bike. <laughs> but obviously, um, if you if you have time constraints, then it's always what what has the most effect, and that's running. So it's because it takes the least time to be anywhere close to to have some effect on on it. That's why most guys that have a full schedule run a lot. And usually they only cycle on the weekends. This is the easiest, you know. Um, and if you have to travel, of course, that's, that's always the same. The first thing that you drop is swimming because, oh, where's the pool? How do I get to the pool? Uh, and, you know, for an hour of swimming, you need at least two hours uh, to get there, get dressed, and so on. Uh, with running, it's walk out of the door and train starts. So um, that said, obviously, if you want to do triathlon, at some point you have to swim and to cycle. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And also, it depends on the distance, you know. Uh, I, I can, from scratch, I cannot const construct a training program, but um, you know, depending on the hours that you have, usually running will be overstressed the less time you have. And motivation, I mean, you have to sign up for a race to, to keep you motivated. Even I have to do that. You know, I signed up for a race as well in, in September. Uh, just to keep me on track and uh, to, I really love to, to, to do triathlon and to exercise, but um, when you have a race coming up, it's always something totally different. Out of these three, which one you so favorite? What was the, what's the most disliked uh, one? one? I, I have a swimming background, as I said, but uh, it's, you know, I, I love everything. That's the problem now for me since I'm retired. Many guys have something that they really don't like, so they, they don't touch the pool anymore, or they sold their bikes, or they have problems with the knees or the ankles or whatever, and they don't run anymore. Um, I have friends like that, they that, you know, clearly said, okay, this is something that I don't do anymore, or they don't go to the gym anymore. My problem is that I love everything, <laughs> and so I end up doing everything, and probably I should focus a little, but uh, I can't. Thank you. Uh, just a swim run. Uh, it's a swim run in uh, in Italy. Uh, it's a three-hour race. It's a single event, not a team event, not like Utrecht. And it's just, as I said, it's a three-hour race, so it's quite doable. And no pressure, but we all gonna watch you. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the Aquatic Runner, and I did it twice, uh, and it's 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 a rather nice race. And but to all these points, you gave up the bike, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's coming on Friday morning. So if you want to check the performance against the uh, former world champion, you can come Friday morning, 6.30, he will be there yeah, and competing, 80 kilometers. We didn't use FTP back in the day, <laughs> but uh, approximately around 350, 360 watts. I did up, up the Jebel, um, which is just half an hour um, from bridge, I did 377 on my best performance. With uh, 70, 70 one kilometers. Yes. So uh, my question is about your training schedule before and now after. So at the peak of your career, what? How many hours would you spend training? 
on the peak of my career, of course, that changed rapidly. I had up to 45 hours when I was in the UAE and doing a lot of base work, where I simply cycled a lot, easy miles. Um, and that came down a bit with the years because you don't need that much anymore. Um, and nowadays, when I'm back home and working, I try to do every day one thing. Sometimes I do two sessions still, but you know, it's like a 3K swim in the morning and 40 minutes in the gym in the afternoon. And uh, it's a 10K run or 11K run in the morning and maybe an hour on the treadmill, uh, on the turbo in the afternoon. So maybe 14 hours a week, but I'm missing out on those long sessions. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I try here to get in a few miles <laughs> on the bike and get those long sessions in because you need those long sessions to build up the mitochondria and the muscle. And uh, you, you, you simply have to have that whenever you do long endurance stuff. So do you tra train with the national team or you just tell them what to do? Sometimes I cycle. Last year I cycled uh, with the guys, um, and but you know I do not run with them. Well, maybe on a rather small, rather uh, slow run, but hardly. You know, um, when I'm with them in training camp, and some uh, last year, for example, in South Africa, I cycled with the girls. <laughs> yeah. training well I mean low heart rate training is more or less the, what I did most of the time uh, and you do base miles that's why the Emirates the UAE is so great for so but how low is low? 100 with me 100 to 110 but you're a pro like someone who's an agent how low is uh, I can't tell you that because not everybody is the same. I have athletes that do base runs with 160, 150 beats per minute. I have athletes that do a base run, both same speed, let's say for 30, with 125. So even amongst my guys, the differences are huge. You know, some things are just genetically. It, high depends on you personally and what you shouldn't do is you shouldn't train too hard base because then you don't build up your base then you do something else and if you really want to know where you are supposed to train then you do a lab test uh, incremental test with the steps just the, the usual thing every three minutes speed increases uh, it's on the turbo and uh, then you put up the wattage or on the treadmill then you put up the speed and then you can see where in which areas you're supposed to be training um, for base and that's an issue because you can see almost at the lab test whether you train too hard for example at base and basically the whole idea is that you train a lot of volume uh, rather slow in order to build up that aerobic engine in very simple terms, no?
you spoke about gym sessions, so you said you would have added more gym sessions to your training if you would have known more, or you would have wanted more squats to train more upper body, but if you say a, a general gym session, how should it look like for a trial to build some strength? Would you be upper body and lower body the same the same amount, or what, what, is there anything you would have learned now over the years? Well, obviously that's also a question that is very general, and it's 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 very individual, because there are athletes, you don't want to do any strength training with them because for some reason they already have a lot of strength and you don't want to emphasize it. Generally, everybody should do a little bit, um, but if we have, um, for example, a guy here that has time constraints um, and you have, let's say, eight hours a week, if uh, the gentleman over there does three hours per week gym training, then we don't have any time for endurance left. What do we do? Uh, same when came up with core. You gotta do core. Core here, core there, core everywhere. You gotta do core all the time. Yeah, but when you have six hours a week, you can't do three hours of core. That doesn't work because then you. Thirty minutes per week. Thirty minutes per week is very little. Uh, that's that's. Core training. You mean core training? Okay. Yeah. No yeah. 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 Yeah, so I'd rather say that before a swim session, for example, you do some core exercises, put them in, and that can last 10, 15 minutes, and then that's it. Uh, and you, there is no time for a proper gym session. With Patrick, for example, the things that we changed in his training was that uh, he started doing uh, gym work during the whole year on a very regular basis. Sometimes we had him do uh, four, gym sessions a week, which is a lot for uh, a triathlete, um, and more just transition runs. These were the basic things that we changed, and of course a little more cycling volume. Uh, but no magic uh, hands or secrets or golden powder or whatever, but just the basics, you know. Um, and, uh, and sometimes, obviously, an increase in volume has a huge impact, and then simply a change of almost anything has a huge impact. Because you, not because the old thing was wrong and the new thing's right, but simply because you changed something. Um, and you have to always find new ways to make the body adapt. And just imagine if you're a young Filipino and you you cannot put more volume on that guy. That has already been done for the last five to ten years. You have to come up with a new plan. Uh, and then you have to throw overboard everything that you know in, in order just to change something. Um, but for example, with most of the guys that I have on the national team, they are so far away from the maximum volume that could be done. So this is the safest solution. Okay, we increase the volume 10% next year, and we're good to go. We'll have and improve. I just wanted to say something for um, triathlon friends and American side about um, motivation and what keeps you motivated as an amateur, just like a hobby triathlete, which I myself as well. Um, I think, okay, take it from the fun side, as soon as you start growing your belly, I think you've got to think about like, getting your training volume a little bit up. Second of all, um, I think we have the most amazing countryside here in the UAE. We have the Uber luxury that um, 
our blessed ruler um, gave us numerous kilometers of um, beautiful um, cycling paths, which um, we regularly abuse. Um, and to see the, the sunrise here in the morning, you like, kind of kick your butt in the morning at four o'clock, get out when it's dark, um, and then just be on the bike and see the sunrise here, cycle out in the desert, see the oryx, it's very quiet, you hear your blood pump in your ears, and I think this is something, if this doesn't motivate you to get up and move your butt, I think, I don't know what else you're looking for. We've got beautiful beaches here, we've got swimming pools everywhere. We're so uber spoiled here with facilities that we can use. We have both his bike shops. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Every wish of my eyes, what I want. Um, I, I, I couldn't ask for anything better, like uh, any better training conditions and motivation. Um, yeah, if you love to race, I would consider myself to be a training donkey <laughs> rather than a race hazard. Uh, I think that's motivation now. Just get out, also meet your buddies on the way. Um, you know, there's, I don't know how many, around 2,000 triathletes in the UAE itself more or less active on the scene, but um, it's just such an awesome community here that I can just recommend get your butt up in the morning, go out and train, and have some fun. Any other questions? Anything? Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, first of all, thanks to be here, Faris. Maybe you don't recognize me. I've done some session with you in the Dandabad in Munich. Long time ago, maybe. I didn't have my tattoos at this time, so that's why. Uh, my question is just, you see all the new technology. You see the um, hard rate monitor. You see the VAT. Do you not think, okay, guys, put it away once a week. Just listen to your body. Think about it, how many beats you really run. Just think about it, what is your heartbeat without. Think about it, how much you think you fast you are, but don't use it. I mean, Daniela Riff is a good thing. I mean, she's doing the competition without watch. Uh, uh, watch. So do you think it's maybe a good thing to do it once a week? Listen to your body, get used to your body, because everything else may make you nervous and too crazy? Well, um all the gadgets that you have, the, the whether it's the power meter or the watch, these are tools. They're supposed to support you and help you. They're not supposed to make you crazy about it. And uh, I think that, you know, I, I have a fairly good knowledge of my body and know pretty good what's happening. Um, not everybody has that, especially in the beginning. Not everybody knows how it's supposed to feel. But um, uh, in in this this point, uh, I share with uh, with Brad Sutton, who said basically says the same that guys, you know, at some point you have to do it. Just do it. And um, triathletes, generally speaking, triathletes are experts on the last five to ten percent of training and 95% of the training is just do it. It's boring base work, more or less boring. And uh, I do not consider it boring at all, but uh, but sometimes it's, it seems to be to some people. And, and this is what the sport basically about, you know, you have to do it. And um, sometimes you want to tell people, you know what, 
just go into the forest and run for an hour and that's it you know just run easy and uh, be alone with yourself and be content with yourself and don't have anything else that said you know the equipment is there to help you especially to guide you a little bit in the beginning and to to get to know your body you know later on you should know when i run 130 feet uh, a minute uh, yeah how that feels like um so it's i think it's an advantage to have all those gadgets nowadays um, but in the end, of course, you have to use them and you have to make the decisions and not the watch should make the decisions for you. I remember when you were writing that you sometimes covered the, the SIM unit and, and just to go by, by feel instead of going by the power meter. And I think sometimes it's, I, I shouldn't say that, but sometimes to leave your Garmin or your design or whatever at home and just go out and ride your bike with your buddies, I think that's really re re yeah, revealing and, and it's just nice to have a, have a good ride and not, not to be... Um, kind of restricted by the numbers and, and so you did you, you covered, I remember you covered the numbers and then you did a race and then later you check your data and really see how far can you push because if you push maybe uh, 350 watts and you think oh I can't go further but maybe on that day you can go 380 or 377 up to Jebler feet and, and if, you, if you're just afraid to push that far uh, maybe you will never reach your full potential. And it can be deceiving. Um, to give you an example, <coughs> I did a race in Kozamori a um, couple of years ago and usually um, I'm able to put out between 280 and 290 watts on an Ironman. So it was in Kosamui, it was 120k bike ride, or 125 or something. <clears throat> so the wattage should be higher. It's a third less of the distance, so wattage should be higher. But with 90% uh, humidity and 35 uh, degrees outside, I had one of the fastest bike splits and I rode 250 watts. So if you look at your power meter and you see 250 watts, you're like, oh, I have a really bad day. Uh, you throw away the bike and you stop, which doesn't make any sense at all. And uh, the fastest bike split, by the way, was uh, the one of Marino van Honaka that day and he had 255. So, you know, sometimes it's deceiving and uh, you still have to know your body and do what you're supposed to be doing and uh, and make the decisions. Thanks, Harris. Um, my question is kind of relates to what we discussed before on the low heart rate training and a lot of base training done there. Um, what would you say to an age group who says something like, if you don't go fast in training, you don't go fast in the race. So if you have to run, um, <laughs> apparently names. But if say you have to run a half marathon, how would you race? Like how would you do it in a race? You have to do it the same way in training. So if you don't go hard in training, you don't go fast in a race. What would you say to that? Well, I mean, th that is to some degree, of course, that is true. But the problem is, um, especially when you train women they increase the volume by 30% of what's on the training schedule. Then they increase the speed a little bit, and then once we come to the hard sessions, they can't do it anymore at the, the prescribed intensity. And there is the problem. <clears throat> and usually if you design a training program, there is certain efforts that have to be done at certain times, 
And if you're so tired that you cannot do them anymore, then something's wrong. And believe me, that, that goes through from age groupers to pros alike. And uh, that doesn't make any sense at all. If you're too tired to do the hard efforts, then you're not fast enough. That doesn't mean that if you run, for example, you prepare for, uh, for a half marathon, you run, let's say, 60 kilometers a week, uh, that you run all those 60 kilometers at race pace. That doesn't make any sense at all. That, that's just nonsense, you know? And uh, you have to balance it out. And there is, of course, coaching philosophy that says, how do you do more volume and slower pace, or a little bit less volume and higher pace? That depends on what type of athlete you are, um, you know, how you function. That is the art of training, the art of coaching. So, but some things are physiology. That is, there, there is no philosophy included in that. That is just simple. Uh, Simple um, physiology, and so and some other things are like you know a little more philosophic, but this is what it's all about, you know. And usually, as a triathlete, rule of thumb: every week you have one hard session per discipline. That worked pretty well, and yeah. So, as I said, as a rule of thumb. Very solid. Um, just with in terms of training, here we've obviously got summer. A lot of us can't be out in the heat. What's your take on treadmill running, indoor biking? I know there's been quite a big push. A lot of social media of the triathletes pushing towards so indoors. What's your take on the indoor training scene? Well, the problem is that if you only train indoors, you don't know how to ride a bike. That's the problem. And if you have a course like Kona, no problem. That's easy. 100k this way, turn around, come back. So if you have a, a rather demanding technical course, that might kill you, you know, literally, because there's a corner and you go straight. Um, so there should be some balance. Obviously, I mean, the treadmill makes it much easier. You hop on and you do your stuff. And uh, I recommend that usually for the German winter, for example, to do kind of sessions with treadmill and uh, turbo trainer. Uh, to preserve the triathlon feeling, to prolong the session, because I mean, who wants to do a three-hour session on a turbo? And uh, in order to get long sessions in, so of course that helps. That is, as the power meter or the 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 heart rate monitor, that's a tool. And uh, the, the the more you stress it, the the less you know you you learn how to handle your bike. I think yesterday. Uh, I don't know his first name, but Bumaki yeah. was here. I mean, that you can see bike control, you know, what that guy can do, and what is possible with a bike. And obviously, I mean, that's uh, for, for the very chosen few, but uh, um, you have to know how to steer your bike, and it gets dangerous. Every year when I do the Wolfie ride, there are some riders that I see that are like, ooh, I don't want to ride behind that guy because it's dangerous. Any more questions? Anything? Don't be shy. I haven't. I have heard them all, and uh, uh, usually one of the favorite topics is nutrition. We haven't we haven't touched that one, and uh, uh, I know it's a very very controversial uh, topic, for example. But 
Please, I'm here to answer all your questions, so feel free and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, I don't want to force you to, but I give, want to give you the opportunity. You know, don't be shy. Should we go keto then? Question about injuries. Did you have any major injuries during your career? And if you did, how did you get through that period? It can be quite a difficult period where you can't train and all these things. I was pretty blessed. I had uh, one or the other crash that wasn't, uh, but wasn't, I was never really badly. And then no one stretch fracture uh, in the hip and uh, simply waited uh, till it was gone. Uh, so no, I, I don't have a long like rehab career that, uh, that uh, but so I, I was always a bit cautious with the running. So in my early years, when I was very young, I ran a lot. But later on in my career, I you know I averaged about 60, 65 kilometers a week, which is nothing, you know, uh, on the national top pro level. But uh, I'd rather do more cycling. Uh, I'd rather do that. My also with my athletes, I'd rather have them cycle three hours a week more than than an hour of running more. Uh, just a question again. You know, this was all a good question. Now I have a bad question for you. Are you wearing a helmet now in the training or still without a <laughs> helmet? And why not? I was simply so used to not riding without a helmet that if I'm on my own, I don't ride with a helmet. But, uh, which is stupid. Uh, no question about it. Uh, so I'm simply not, was not used to it. I never liked it. Um, I remember that Wolfie once said to me, Ferris, can you do me a favor and wear a helmet when you ride with us? I said, okay, well, you know, if you, you are so nice that I can't say no. <laughs> and if I'm with the Federation, obviously I'm obliged to ride with a helmet. And, you know, nowadays I'm, I'm pretty happy that uh, the kids are so used to it that there's no question for them. Um, and, uh, yeah, as I said, I'm simply, uh, I'm simply not, not used to it. I don't like it. And, um, when I go mountain biking, for example, I always wear a helmet because it's simply dangerous. Um, but on the road, I cycled so many kilometers, and especially also here in the UAE, nothing ever happened. And you're like, oh, but as I said, it's stupid. No question about it. So it's not a promise yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I remember you had a quick excursion into mountain biking, as you mentioned. Yeah. You did Cape Epic, so you did in which year? In 2009. Okay, and how would you compare, let's say, in a stage race like the Cape Epic uh, compared to? Ironman in Hawaii, how, how is the, how was the experience? Completely different. I mean, Cape Epic is a great experience. I mean, every endurance lover should try to get in and, and do it. Uh, it was just simply, simply great. I was led to my technical borders, you know, of, of how good I, I'm able to, to ride a mountain bike, to handle a bike. Uh, but it was a great experience and, uh, you know, I can, I can truly recommend it for everyone. Uh, to go out and try, and it's hard um, because you know, at an Ironman race, you have that one day thing, of course, after the words you're spent, um, and then it builds up. And uh, you have many guys that are able to ride quite solid for three days, and then you know, they crumble to pieces. Um, and so, it's a, it's a different thing, simply, it's a different thing. Hi, Faris. Um, I have two questions. Since you mentioned about the nutrition. Um, do you know any professional athletes who is able to perform exceedingly well 
by being a vegetarian diet, uh, by avoiding eating meat, for example. And the second question, um, when it comes to the, how do you call it, the, the trainings and the competition against the top athletes, and um, how did you overcome the challenge when you mentally prepare yourself that you're capable of doing this distance, for example, and this effort? Uh, did you have a team or friends who were encouraging you to believe yourself, or you just were able to cope yourself? So, first of all, Patrick Lana is a vegetarian, not a pretty strict one. He would eat meat from time to time, occasionally, but basically he's vegetarian. And vegetarian simply means that you have to take care more of your nutrition and probably check your blood more often uh, than another athlete. But that's basically it, that nowadays, you know, with all of the supplements that you can get, it's just it just more it adds more work to it. Uh, and then the, the other thing, I, I never needed anyone to encourage me to do it. Uh, uh, I was myself was enough, and I wanted to do triathlon. And long distances were never an issue for me. So I simply I liked that a lot. And uh, yeah, from, even when I was a swimmer, I enjoyed the the boring long, like 30 times 100 meters uh, sessions, much more than anything more playful. But you challenge yourself? Is it just something you, you like to compete and then see the guy in front of you and you say, listen, I'm going to beat you? And if you're in the pool, you, you feel like, okay, you want to beat the next time. So what's the, just like kind of the motivation to, to go faster and say, okay, I did one minute and now I do 59 seconds? The, the Of course, the time uh, and with Especially with running, it was difficult for me from from the very beginning um, to push myself that hard. So I knew that I needed uh, other people around, and I needed a training group. And uh, I'm in a running group uh, to this day for uh, more than 20 years now. And uh, yeah, so that was necessary, but um, to, to push that extra little bit. On the bike, it never felt so hard, so I could do um, short efforts and. Uh, on the on the treadmill or so. Are you still in contact with Pete Jacobs? No, no. Pete is a very special person, and uh, and I I share very little of his beliefs. But uh, um, I mean, he was a world champion, and that he deserves respect for that. And uh, and he had a very different approach to the whole thing than I had. Um, but um, that said, I mean, uh, some things were amazing. I mean, he would go to sip some wine and then, oh, okay, today it's okay. And He's then, eating only meat, I listened to him. Yeah, but, but he, was, he was on a different thing before, and uh, so, yeah, it's, as I said, I don't share many of uh, those beliefs. Um, but as I said, he was a special athlete, and uh, he would swim three to four times a week maybe three to four kilometers max and then he would you know put out one or two series where he would think that this is impossible with that type of training and also um uh, his his running he was very very technique orientated and uh, yeah totally different approach rather crazy but uh yeah but it worked he won the ironman hawaii in I don't know about yeah, 12. 212, okay.
Any more? I've got one more. Paris, do you think, I know you minimalistic, everyone's commented on your, you arriving at the airport with just a bike box with all your clothes in. Um, do you think that the triathlon scene is seen as being overcomplicated? Do you think people are overcomplicating their training and taking things to the far, way to where they should actually just be, like you said, having fun? A little bit, yes. Um, I mean, if you have an issue with the, the, the ripeness of your banana, you know, then you come to a certain point, you know, and uh, the interesting thing is that pros are usually way less complicated and, uh, and stressing around the minor stuff than some of the age groupers, and I know what I'm talking about because uh, from time to time uh, I uh, I do training camps with the age groupers uh, with age groupers in, in uh, on the Canary Islands, um, and uh, you know you sometimes you're like, dude, seriously? I mean, this is that why does that question even come up? You know, um, but uh, yeah, people tend to think way too much about it and. Uh, don't stay with the with the basics. So did you did you tell your age group is the same thing you told Patrick Langer when you first met him that he had no talent? <laughs> oh, that that would be unfair because most of the guys, <clears throat> obviously, there there are some when when I do those those training camps, then there's from all ranges. You know, you have people that barely know how to ride a bike, from people that. Um, uh, try to, uh, well, I mean, try not try try, but I mean they're pretty close to qualification to the qualification for Kona, so they know to um, serious degree what what they're doing, um, and so to tell somebody that is uh, 120 kilograms uh, that he has no talent to qualify, uh, yeah, that's obvious. I don't have to do that. That that won't work next year. If he's working on it. Um, with a longer time frame, then that works, uh, or that can work. Um, so uh, it's a completely different story, you know. And uh, with Patrick, it was, I, I couldn't believe that he could run that fast. You know, I mean, everybody could see that he was running fast, but not that fast. And I couldn't um, estimate the, the aerodynamic position that he could really hold on the bike. That was something that I couldn't see in the beginning. Um, I just want to mention as well that before Faris came here today, he was with Marcus uh, from Inner Fight, and I think uh, you have a, a podcast uh, coming out in the next couple of weeks, so if you don't follow uh, Inner Fight podcast, I think it's a really, really uh, interesting 610 episodes now, so I think it's, it's a nice podcast to follow. And, and you will be on there in the next couple of weeks, so sign up for that. Uh, but I think most of the guys have heard yes. what, what I've said there. You want to relive it again. <laughs> there isn't so much difference. Yes. So, and again, from, from my side, thank you all so much. I think it has been a pleasure. You're, I think you're a very humble person and you're an absolute legend in the sport. And, and it's, it's amazing how you can be a world champion and then just listen, take it easy, European champion. So, Boris, thank you very much for taking the time and I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. You're most welcome. Thank you very much. I think if you want to take some pictures, I think we have some bikes to sign and uh, any other questions so far as this around. And yeah, thank you very much.